Welcome to Preble Hall. My name is John Sherwood, and today I am interviewing the 17th Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Michael G. Mullen. This is our 13th interview today, and we are at the Naval Academy, and uh, welcome aboard, sir. Thanks. Good to be back with you, John. Okay, today we're going to discuss two topics in depth and then several others, but the first is the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And in preparation for this, I read a very interesting study by Nathan Lowry of the Joint History Office uh, analyzing the whole process. And one of the things that he mentioned in the book is that both you and Secretary Bob Gates were ahead of many of your peers, meaning the, the other chiefs, uh, and also some of the civilians with regard to the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And you, you told a committee, a Senate committee in February of 2010, quote, speaking for myself and myself only, it is my personal belief that allowing gays and lesbians to serve openly would be the right thing to do. No matter, how, no matter how I look at the issue, I cannot escape being troubled by the fact that we have, a, have in place a policy which forces young men and women to lie about who they are in order to defend their fellow citizens. For me, it comes down to integrity, theirs as individuals, and, and ours as an institution. And about the statement Lowry wrote, as chairman, he believed it imperative that he assume responsibility for the problem so that the military could retain control of the process for making and implementing policy solutions. Personally, he had come to value institutional integrity above operational readiness. Rather than wait for someone uh, on the committee to ask for his personal opinion, a possibility that he had accepted with near certainty, Mullen concluded that it would be more advantageous to seize the initiative and strike, strike first. Quote, and this is quoting Mullen, I chose to say it up front when I had the mic, if you will, rather than to try to figure out how to get that out in the midst of heated questions from one side or another, when the whole tone and environment in the hearing room could have been different. So what are your thoughts? Does Lowry have it? correct or or what is your interpretation of the yeah, whole I think concept? I think Larry has it about correct I mean this is 2010 the story for me was in 2008 when then candidate Obama was on the campaign trail and said that if he won became president he would see to it that there would be a repeal that really got my attention because different for me than 1993 when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was put in place. In 93, I'm the CEO of USS Yorktown. I got a you know, full-time job focused going to sea with sailors, mission, etc. So I'm not paying much attention in terms of what's going on in Washington. I'm just carrying out you know, the orders and regulations uh, and laws at the time. Uh, obviously, as chairman, that's different. So when Obama said this, uh, I reckon I, I, one thought was immediately, and this stayed with me throughout the entire time, is 
civilian leadership can't do this without the military. The military, uh, if we're going to do it, and it was a big if, I didn't know that, if the change is going to be made, the military needs to lead this. I'm the senior military officer in the country, so I needed to to get smarter on it, understand what had happened between 1993 and 2008 in terms of literature, studies, uh, views, etc. Uh, the country had socially moved way beyond, uh, uh, you know, supporting. I mean, it was ve very supportive of gays and lesbians writ large as well as being in the military. So in a sense that Someone thought I may have been ahead. Lowry talks about that. I thought the military was behind. And there was a, there was a representative from Northern California who I knew pretty well. Ellen Tauscher was her name. And, and she blistered me at one point in time about how far behind I was personally and we were as a military. It wasn't a two-way conversation. And I had a lot of time for Ellen, who sadly is, has passed away in recent years. Um, so I knew I had to do something. So I literally took a small group. There, there was a, a part of my um, senior study group. Uh, there was an, uh, an active duty Coast Guard captain by the name of Sam Neal, who I said, basically told Sam, put a small group together and go start to look at this. Talk to the people who were there then, that, who were in, there in the 90s during the Clinton administration, who are still around. Uh, who are the experts on this? Where's the literature on this, uh, et cetera? So we started a, <clears throat> what turned out to be about a two-year study, not quite by the time that testimony occurred, but from 2008 to that testimony, pretty in-depth review of where we were. And it turns out there hadn't been much literature. Uh, I think Rand published a study in 2003, as I recall, uh, and there hadn't been done, you know there hadn't been much work done on it. Um, uh, so we did that work, uh, and part of the work for me was, and I was out, as, as we've talked about before, I was out and about quite a bit. Uh, troops on the ground, Iraq, Afghanistan, and around the world, around the country and around the world, particularly with the Army, uh, because as I've said many times, the Army is the center of gravity of our military. Now, we're in two wars at the time, uh, and, uh, and I'm obviously very conscious of that as well. And I certainly am conscious that this is a, you know, potentially a very controversial issue. Uh, I mean, particularly when you add the fact that, you know, we're losing people in these wars. Uh, and that obviously, uh, and the wars are not going particularly well. Uh, uh, but uh, anyway, so I put people to work. Obama wins, becomes the president. Um, and then in his 2010... To, and to, I think it was yeah, the 2010 State of the Union address, uh, he surprised both Bob Gates and myself by inserting this in his State of the Union speech. Normally those get circulated to some degree, certainly to the principals, and Gates and I were caught flat-footed when, uh, when the president said it in the State of the Union, and of course... Moments after he says that, seemingly, boom, the Klieg lights go on for me and Gates because it's the military, it's the Pentagon. Where are you guys on this? And that's the flat-footed piece. Um, within a short period of time, Levin, who was the chairman of the Senate Armed Service Committee, calls and is very supportive of where Obama's going, uh, calls a hearing 
that uh, for Gates and I on this issue. So we had done enough work at that point. Over the course of that, let's say, 18 months or so, my own experience was meeting with small groups uh, was that it wasn't, there were two things. One, for the young people, it was hard for me, and most of our military is young, it was hard for me to get into a meaningful conversation <laughs> with them. Basically, the response was, why are we even talking about this? Would you, would you? because they'd grown up with it, much more so than my generation. Uh, uh, would, you please, they want to, would you please talk to me about my liberty, my leave, my pay, my family, you know, how are things at the commissary and exchange, the kinds of things that leaders, junior leaders in particular should focus on for their, for their people. Uh, and if you do that well, they'll, do, they'll carry out the mission exceptionally. Well, so I mean that was was essentially my response. But there was a there was a moment uh, in a country uh, that I won't name. It's not important. But Marines have you know depending on the size of the embassy, they have the security requirement at an embassy. And I had lunch with five Marines in this one country, and the senior Marine at lunch was a sergeant, so an E five, um, and. It was just me as chairman and them, which can be pretty intimidating for anybody, young Marines. I understand that. But I asked them about Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And, of course, there's this dead silence for, for a minute or two. And then this, uh, this sergeant speaks up and said, Chairman, look, my best buddy in Iraq saved my butt a number of times, uh, got out of the Marine Corps, and, and then came out, and he's gay. And he said, and I don't care one way or the other about that. What I cared about is whether or not he'd be a great Marine. And this guy was a great Marine. And that's essentially the essence of the discussion and the essence of my position. I don't care about what your sexual orientation is. You know, if you do your job well, that's what I'm asking for. And so that was one example. Another example on the other, you know, much more senior end of that, were individuals who had spent 20, 25 years, and these were individuals from like, uh, you know, E8, E9 to 05 to 06 or 07, senior, you know, some flags, who'd gotten out of the rack every single day wondering if that was the day they were going to lose their career because they essentially were living a lie about who they were uh, while having this desire, burning desire to serve their country and do so patriotically and exceptionally well. Uh, and it was that aspect of it. I mean, when that sunk in, it didn't take long, it was that aspect, it was living a lie every day. That became the integrity issue. And we're an institution that values integrity. That's probably, I, I call it, the two things that, that um, identify us as an institution more than anything else are integrity and accountability. Um, and uh, and integrity is the top of my list. And so, and I'm now, I'm losing kids in Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, I got young ones that are dying for our country every single day, some of whom are gay and lesbian. And so I, I it, it was just a complete mismatch for me. So after all that work, and it was work, and a much better understanding that's what led to my statement on that day. Uh, and up until that point, whenever this issue had come up, it was, it was about sex and lifestyle as opposed to 
values. And one of the things that that testimony did was change the terms of reference of the debate. I get, I get uh, people tell me how courageous that was. I will just tell you, at that point, given the value, it was pretty easy testimony to give. Now, one thing Lowry does get right here in that second quote about my timing, and the War College case would go like this, which is, why did he answer a question he wasn't asked? Uh, and the answer is pretty well summed up by Lowry's, what, Lowry's quote of what I said. I wanted to do it. You get a free moment or two as a witness on the Hill in any committee hearing to make an opening statement. So I chose uh, to, I was virtually certain I was going to get asked my personal opinion at this <clears throat> by Levin, if no one else. Um, I chose to make that statement. I was very clear. This is my personal opinion, not my professional judgment at this point, because we still had work to do uh, on how much it would affect operational readiness, and we can talk about that. That was sort of the issue. But the terms of reference changed from that moment on. Nobody ever took this issue on or took integrity on, uh, if you will, literally from that moment. Uh, and I chose to use it as part of my opening statement uh, because I was basically free and clear. The, 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 the hearing hadn't really started. We weren't into the emotional or objective Q's and A's. Uh, and uh, where I expected it to go, and it did once we started. So it was, so it was an opportune time to do that. Uh, and again, I made the point, and this is the work house, this was my personal opinion, which we're required to give if asked, not required to give it if we're not asked, and that would be what I'd be criticized for, you know, technically speaking, uh, at the work college. And I, the other thing is uh, John Kirby and I wrote this statement, uh, and didn't, I didn't share it with, normally I would do this to, back to my team, if you will, my colleagues, the other joint chiefs. I didn't share it with any of them. Uh, and while I'm critical of Obama for blindsiding Gates and I, my colleagues would be critical of me because the same thing that happened to Gates and I happened to them after my testimony. They're going to Gary Ruffhead, where are you on this kind of thing? And they didn't have enough time to prepare. I just chose to do that, to try to save the moment for clarity and not have it leak and get out of control before I had an opportunity to say something. I knew Gates was supportive. Gates had actually made this change at the CIA when he was a director, I think in 1993. Uh, but I believed, I believe then, I believe now, not Obama, not Gates, there weren't civilians that could deliver this to the military. It needed to be the military leadership that essentially said this was okay and we're going to do this. Whether you agreed with it or not, these are our orders, this is going to be okay. And that's, that's where I was. Now, my fellow chiefs were not all there at that point. Uh, and this is February in 2010. There was a lot of work to do over the course of that year, which we did, including a study to look at whether it would make a difference in war, including a study to see really where the troops were, uh, and then to 
essentially respond to what became a lot of political concerns, particularly those of John McCain, who's a very interesting study in all this, because if anything mattered to McCain, it was integrity. And if I followed him true, you know, as a true North guy on any value, it was the integrity issue. But again, he never pushed back on that aspect of it. Um, politically, it was, you know, there was a bunch of pushback from the Republican Party, uh, per se. But the, in the end, the study showed that the troops would be supportive. Again, the average age of any unit is 21 years old. It gets back to what I said, why are we having this discussion? Uh, the study also, and this was carried out by Carter Ham, General Carter Ham and, and Jay Johnson. Jay Johnson at the time was a general counsel in the Pentagon. Uh, and they looked very carefully at the possible impacts of it, and they came back and generally said the troops are supportive of it. So all that work had to be done. And I will give, as upset as I was with the president when he blindsided us, the president gave us running room to figure out as best we could to look at what the impact was over many months. As I know for a fact, he was getting beat to death by his base, saying, don't trust the military. They're, somehow they're going to undo this. Just write an executive order and get it done. And Obama, to his credit, wanted it changed in law, which is eventually where we ended up, which I believe was the right answer. And that's what really sealed the deal. Uh, in terms of making sure that it, it would get bo both put in law and then uh, implemented. So uh, it was, and then th there were, there were, uh, and Bob Gates and, and Jay Johnson were more involved in this, although I was involved, there were many court cases at the time, suits being filed, uh, countersuits being filed, the policy was legally changing <laughs> It did several over the course of the year, and it was a real struggle for us to kind of get that right, what we had to do. But Bob Gates, again, to his great credit, essentially really took pains to end any discriminatory policies with respect to gays and lesbians over the course of that time, right up to the edge of, my view, what was, what was doable, given the law. Uh, and so... So it was. So the train was moving in that direction. And then one last thing I'd say: over the course of that year, I, each year I would take this USO show into the Christmas show into Iraq and Afghanistan. And that year, it was uh, second time I was taking Robin Williams and his producer, his agent who produced the show, and several other luminaries. And we did that the first week in December. And when we got on the plane at Andrews Air Force Base early December, 3rd of December, something like that, this issue was dead. The House had passed it the previous December uh, under Pelosi's leadership during the lame duck session. So it was, it was going to be law if the Senate passed it. But there was no opening that any of us saw at that point in December that it was going to get passed in this Senate. Uh, and then literally over the course of going over there, uh, Scott Brown from Massachusetts comes out, Republican senator from Massachusetts comes out and supports it. Susan Collins, I think Susan had supported it, but she was out there on the Republican side. Lieberman had already been out there. He was pretty uh, proactive on these issues for a long time. Uh, 
and maybe one more, but all of a sudden where it was completely dead, we saw no path, literally a handful of votes changed and it passed overnight and it was done. I mean, literally on that trip, it was done. And subsequent to that, you know, I also engaged my peers in other countries who'd done this before, Israel, Australia, the UK, among others. And I can remember having a conversation with Jock Stewart, Jock Stirrup, who was my British counterpart and a good friend. Uh, and they had, they had gone through this in about 2000, so a decade earlier. And I asked Jock, you know, tell me about it. He says, well, there was a great kerfluffle before they passed the law. And then after the law, and I'll quote him, you know, basically he said after that it was a nothing sandwich. And I would argue for us, after it was passed, it's been pretty much a nothing sandwich. It doesn't mean we haven't had some issues. We have, but pretty much a nothing sandwich. Um, and so that's the, you know, that's the story, uh, certainly as I see it. So I, I, back to your question, I think Lowry's got this mostly right. Um, uh, the, the piece that about the military retaining control, I suppose technically speaking, you could say that you might look at it objectively and say, well, that's what we did. I, I never thought about retaining control. I was much more in the mode of believing that civilian leadership couldn't pass this thing. Uh, and I came to believe in it, uh, and so I wanted to lead it. It took a while to get my peers on board, uh, including the new commandant of the Marine Corps, who came in, I think, in November of 10. He relieved Jim Conway, uh, and Jim Amos was his name, first aviator to be commandant, a good friend. I'd known Jim since I was a one-star, really close friend of mine. And I was naive enough to think that the first thing a new commandant of the Marine Corps was going to do in November, uh, right after he came in, he said, yeah, and my first policy discussion and recommendation is going to be approve gays and lesbians in the Marine Corps. That, it was, that just wasn't going to happen. To his great credit in this discussion, and he wasn't supportive right to the end, he says, if the law changes, the Marine Corps will be the first institution that gets through all the training and is ready to go. And to his credit, that's exactly what the Marine Corps did. So a couple of issues. Uh, you mentioned the DOD compre Comprehensive Review Working Group study. Yeah. That study went out of the way to interview more people than they thought necessary to get a sample size, thousands and thousands of people. They in it interviewed members of all the services plus spouses. And 70% of respondents thought that the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell would have a neutral or positive effect upon unit cohesion. And this is at a time when we're at, we're at war in Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. And I guess the remaining 30% were mainly comprised of Army and Marine types, and I think you mentioned that. So that really, you really had that study on, on your side. The Well, I, th I think the, if it's, it's, well, I didn't think it was overreach, but I think the extension of data collecting because we were in a position, again, not a lot of literature. They really wanted to get the data collection right. They wanted to get the data to make sure that they got the results right. Uh, and there wasn't a lot of data over the last, over the 
previous 15 years since Don't Ask, Don't Tell was put in place. Um, uh, so it became, it became really good data versus someone's strong opinion uh, about readiness. I, I actually, I think the readiness issue was a bogus issue. I thought it was. Um, there's nobody in any military unit over the course of my career that hadn't served with gays or lesbians, gay guys or obviously lesbian women. Obviously, the number of women who were in our military during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars were much larger than when I started in the military back in the 60s. We all knew that. Oftentimes, they were amongst the best performers on the ship uh, in the unit because they wanted to my view, overcompensate to make sure that they weren't singled out for anything but excellence. Um, uh, and rarely, it did happen on case, rarely were there any issues with them. I mean, any kind of discipline issues whatsoever. If they were outed one way or another, then they were gone. We kicked them out. I knew that. And I had done that myself. Um, so, I, I mean, uh, you know, that, that was a reality. Now, it wasn't often talked about publicly, uh, but it was part of who we are, and we are part of what America is, so that shouldn't surprise anybody. Um, uh, it just was good to get the data and then to get the discussion out, to get the law changed, and then move on, which obviously we have. I recently was over in Europe, and I interviewed a senior aviator, naval aviator, naval academy graduate. And I interviewed this person in the DFAC, and clearly this person had command presence because of how everybody else treated this person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned I was interviewing you, and this person said, thank you, I wouldn't have stayed in the military if it hadn't been for, for him. Yeah. Yeah. So it may have been a nothing burger for, for straight members of the armed services, but for gay members, it was a huge sea change. And, no, I, there, and, and I, I don't want yeah, it's. I'm glad you asked that question and stated it that way. Believe me, uh, I was not saying that it, wasn't a nut, that it was a nothing sandwich for everybody. It was a nothing sandwich for the institution mm -hmm. in terms of, okay, we're moving on. It fundamentally changed lives for all of those who were gay and lesbian uh, and actually becomes the centerpiece for what is now a very difficult debate, wrongfully so from my standpoint, about transgender individuals. Uh, um, uh, so, and I, I, I can't count the number of gay and lesbian troops at every level who have come up to me to say thanks. I, I, I got that. Um, but in terms of institutional impact, in terms of ability to carry out the mission, in terms of operational readiness, zero, uh, absolutely zero. And I and and a, you know, a fun story. It's fun, but it's really instructive. Uh, I actually worked with a gay and lesbian advocate, five hundred one c threes, over the course of a couple of years. Uh, and one of the things I told those leaders was, I need responsible leadership from your side 
of this discussion as well. Because we're in two wars, and if you quote unquote spook the herd, then it won't. Get, my judgment was it would we'd never get it done. And they worked that very responsibly over the course of that time. One of them called me, literally the month after I retired in 2011. So this is uh, this is 2010, right? The law changes at the end of 2010, and then a year later I'm out. And, and this woman called me and said. We're going to have a, this is in October of 2011 now, we're going to have a big celebration up in New York on the Intrepid to celebrate Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Will you come and be the principal speaker and guest? I said, no. You know, I, the way I describe it is I'm tired. I'm going to bed. I gave at the office, you know, and I'm moving on. And she said, okay. Uh, and that wasn't the only thing I didn't do over the course of that first year. A year later, she calls me, uh, or actually six months later. So now we're into 2012, and she said, we're going to have this celebration this year. And uh, I said, okay, I'm still not inclined. She goes, Chairman Mullen, wh what you don't understand, for so many of these people, you are the first person in authority in in structure, in institutions, in their lives that validated their lives because they didn't get it from their families, they didn't get it at their schools, they didn't get it in their workplace, they didn't get it oftentimes in their social world. You have to come because they want to say thank you. So hard to turn that one down. So Deb and I go up in November of 12, 1,100 plus on the Intrepid. I've been to a lot of parties. I've been to a lot of celebrations. Never been to one that had so much positivity in the air. And, and gratitude, um, uh, including then, this is 2012, an 87-year-old World War II uh, paratrooper who'd never been acknowledged came up to me with tears in his eyes to say thanks. That's the human part of this. That's what oftentimes gets lost in this, you know, the emotional debate at the political level. That's what gets lost, quite frankly, now with the whole issue of transgenders. It's the same thing. Uh, or it's another version of that. Um, so in the end, it was a you know pretty extraordinary. It was a it was a bigger change than I realized at the time, even as we were going through it. Although it was a big change, and I knew that. Well, I'd like to thank you, sir. This is a good point to end. This is Preble Hall. Preble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.